Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily Puck's podcast on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Teddy Schleifer. It is Thursday, July 28th. And today, Dylan Byers is here to talk about two scandals in two different corners of media, one at The New Yorker and another at CNN. And later on, Ben Landy sits down with Julia Alexander to talk about the streaming wars and how they've turned to the world of fantasy. Amazon's Lord of the Rings and HBO's House of the Dragon are going head to head. We'll hear all about that and more on today's episode of The Powers That Be. This podcast is proudly supported by Netflix, presenting The Gentleman. The new series from Guy Ritchie stars Emmy nominee Theo James, Kaya Scodelario, and Daniel Ings. Eddie Horniman, played by Theo James, unexpectedly inherits his father's estate, only to discover it's part of a cannabis empire. And Britain's criminal underworld wants a piece of the operation, forcing Eddie to play the gangsters at their own game. Now available only on Netflix. Happy Thursday, everybody. Teddy Schleifer, still here. Peter Hamby, still mysteriously missing. We'll look into what happened there. But uh, I am happy to be joined today by Dylan Byers, our savant on the world of media, who's tracking the seemingly daily, there's always there's always some scandal or another. Yeah, there's always something. So, someone has always sent a bad tweet. It sounds like I should be tracking Peter. Do we know what happened to him? Many people are saying many things. Uh, <laughs> That's good. Our, our first affection. Dylan, I want to talk about two stories with you. One of them, I guess, is a, a scandal on the upslope. The other is a scandal on the downslope. Let's start with The New Yorker, the austere magazine that uh, has business problems, but but definitely still has like cultural, enormous cultural relevance and people in, in highbrow society. Can you explain like what the hell is going on? Because it, it sort of feels like that's like one media brand that like sort of hovers above like the daily chaos of Twitter. Right. No one is safe. No one is safe. Can you give me the quick, like, two-minute explanation? What's going on at The New Yorker? Yeah. Well, The New Yorker itself is actually uniquely, and in a way that is very much an anomaly in the magazine business, does very well, Mm. actually, as a business in terms of revenue. And because, whereas most magazines get their revenue from advertising, Right. The New Yorker has a very strong subscription business because it has a very loyal subscriber base that continuously renews at a rate of something like 70 or 80% every year. All of that to say is that The New Yorker is both sort of a cultural crown jewel or a feather in the cap of the Newhouse family, as well as a successful business. But like you said, it is not at all safe from this new media reality we live in where one employee can sort of decide that they are aggrieved or or take issue with something. And instead of addressing it through the traditional HR channels are kind of just going to light up their employer and their bosses on Twitter. We saw that happen with Felicia Sanmez at the Washington Post, uh, which we discussed a few weeks ago. And now it's happened with uh, Aaron Overby at, um, at the New Yorker and she was fired for it. And we could, I suppose, jump into the weeds here of what her accusations are there about. Yeah, give me the 30-second version of what happened. Sure. She takes issue with, you know, basically, are there too many white men at the magazine? There needs to be greater 
gender parity, there needs to be greater racial equality. Absolutely, everywhere, 100% true. I think there's also a case to be made on the New Yorker's side that if you look at what the contributor list looked like and even the masthead looked like when David Remnick got the job versus where it's at now, I think that I would say that it'd be hard to argue that progress has not been made on that front. I think it certainly has. Could there be more progress? Sure, I suppose there can always be more progress. Part of the problem with this tweet thread, though, and the reason I don't think she has many colleagues who sympathize with her Mm -hmm. is that she really disparages the integrity of the New Yorker itself and even the integrity of David Remnick, a Pulitzer Prize winning, you know, one of the last great editors who sort of steered this magazine for well over a decade and basically accuses him of like putting falsehoods in her work in order to try and justify getting her out of the building. I I don't know anyone who really buys that claim. Also, that's not really how it works. Um, There's a pretty rigorous fact-checking process there that certainly would have caught any intentional errors. Anyway, for me, like where I'm sitting, you know, miles away from all this, I think what's just interesting and what we keep coming back to is one of the sidebar stories of media in the digital age is that you have these illustrious brands or, or, or brands that are known for the integrity of their journalism and that that is something that has been built up over decades and in some cases over a century. Right. In the case of New Yorker, we're approaching a century, I believe. And that this is something that's hard fought for and maintained and requires, in the New Yorker's case, a very big fact-checking unit with high standards and you can have one employee who just decides because either they're afraid they're going to get fired or they have to take issue with something that they're going to try and blow the place up. And I have to say that I'm 100% for progress. And I do often think that the HR channels don't always work in terms of bringing about progress at organizations. But it is hard for me. It is hard for me to see these rogue staffers trying to blow up these institutions by like airing all the dirty laundry in, you know, like 40 tweet long tweet threads. The end of these stories always, it usually ends the same way, which is that the employee gets fired. That is what happened here. (laughs) Speaking of rogue staffers and employees getting fired, um, the segue there, let's talk about a a scandal on the downslope, which is Chris Cuomo, Andrew Cuomo's brother, he didn't even need Twitter. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> to try he, and blow the place up. Yeah, that's sort of, sort of a counter argument to, to this. Is like you know, there are, there are many ways to blow a place up on, on social via lawsuit. Um, Chris Cuomo is back, sort of. Your your, your eyes are, are saying a lot right now. Yeah. Well, let's try that again. Is Chris Cuomo back? Question mark, Dylan. So Chris Cuomo is joining News Nation. The audience for News Nation is in prime time, where I imagine he will be, does an average of about 50,000 viewers. Mm-hmm. In the demo, they do about 8,000. You're not mishearing me. I'm not saying 800,000. I'm saying 8,000 viewers in the demo. It is very much a fledgling business, mm-hmm. although fledgling suggests some sign of future potential, which I don't necessarily see. <laughs> fledgling is overly, overly flattering. <laughs> <laughs> really flatter. 
But it is a place, if you are a disgraced veteran of the television news business or someone who couldn't quite hack it at the other three networks, it is certainly a place to land. And it is certainly a place to do something. And like, let us never forget that a lot of people who work in television news need to be on TV and need the like, camera. Like psychologically, not financially, but psych- psychologically. Yeah, well, and in some cases, financially. And in Chris Cuomo... I think everyone who knows him, who I've talked to would say the psychological need is certainly there. And then, uh, you know, I also think that, you know, around the time he was fired, he was finishing work on a waterfront property in the Hamptons and he's got a $125 million arbitration suit against CNN, but I'm not really sure he's going to get any money from them. But is he back? No. I mean, will he probably generate some headlines that'll run on Mediaite, which by the way, is run by Dan Abrams, who is also at News Nation, who is a friend of Chris Cuomo's. And will they try and gin up some attention for what he's saying on television, cast him as a sort of free agent truth teller? Sure. It's hard enough to get audiences to CNN and MSNBC right now. I don't see this really happening in News Nation. So you have to ask, why does this channel exist? What's the story behind this, this channel that all of a sudden is a home for a rehabilitation network for people? Who else is there? Just give me a quick sense. Yeah, the big one is they got Michael Korn, who was an executive producer at Good Morning America who was ousted from that network amid sexual harassment allegations that have since we should have, have since been dismissed. So he's there. And then, you know, you've got random anchors and correspondents from CNN and Fox News who you haven't heard of in a long time. It seems to me like the guy who owns News Nation, which is next, it's run by Nexstar, and the guy who runs Nexstar is a guy named Perry, Perry Souk. It seems to me like that he, what he basically recognized is that he had a cable channel that nobody was watching and then maybe more people would watch it if he turned it into a news network and positioned it as like an alternative, especially because cable news was so lucrative during the Trump era and the past few years. So maybe you boost Nexstar's stock price if you make a play for that money. And it's not a bad calculation. And clearly there are enough people who needed a home right. and needed the camera to, to make it work. So we'll see. Is Chris Cuomo back? I, I don't He's certainly not where he was. Dylan, thank you for coming by. Thank you, Teddy. Better having you host the pod. We'll find Peter eventually, I'm sure. This podcast is proudly supported by Netflix, presenting the new series, The Gentleman. Theo James, Kaya Scodelario, and Daniel Ings star in what the playlist calls an entertaining crime comedy filled with style, panache, and laughs. The Evening Standard raves, The Gentleman is peak Guy Ritchie, impossible not to love. Now available only on Netflix. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome back. I'm Ben Landy, executive editor at Puck. And I'm here with Julia Alexander, our streaming expert and industry analyst. 
And also probably one of the few people I know who is more excited than I am, I have to guess, about the two mega fantasy franchises coming back this summer. HBO's Game of Thrones prequel, House of Dragon, and Amazon Prime's The Rings of Power, which is, of course, based on Lord of the Rings. Julia, how excited are you on a scale of 1 to 10? Like a solid 12. So there's a party that's excited for the shows because I'm just excited for the shows, to your point. But also part of me is excited for like true competition in the streaming space in a way that we haven't truly seen happen yet. And so I'm very excited from like that aspect of my like obsessions to just track it day after day after day. So the billion dollar question is whether either of these blockbuster franchises which, by the way, are are incredibly expensive to produce, actually move the needle for either HBO or for Amazon in terms of their subscription numbers at a time when the entire streaming industry is kind of in the doldrums, especially from Wall Street's perspective. What are the numbers that you are looking at to gauge whether these shows are actually successful? So there's two sets of numbers that I'm most interested in. So when we look at the type of shows that get produced, uh, for anything really, but if we want to keep streaming front of mind, shows typically have one of two goals. They are expected to either um, be acquisition drivers, so they drive a lot of customer acquisition. People come in, they sign up for the new big show, um, or they're retention drivers. So when people are done with the new big show, they're sticking around to watch something. So a Game of Thrones for HBO back in 2011, 2012, was a huge customer acquisition driver. It was what people came and signed up for HBO Now for because they wanted to come and watch it. And if we look at HBO Max now, something like Friends would be a retention driver where people are done with Game of Thrones, they're done with House of the Dragon, and they're going back to Friends. So I think the question for HBO Max specifically is you know, whether House of, Dragon, House of the Dragon drives two, three million subscribers over the course of the quarter that that show is released. The question I have with those numbers, and those are kind of my expectations, they're not necessarily external expectations or they're not internal expectations. My question is, how many of the Game of Thrones fans who are tuning into House of the Dragon already have HBO Max? Because I imagine the Venn diagram between Game of Thrones fans and then other HBO Max offerings like DC, for example, is probably just one big circle. So people who have HBO Max already have it. This is something that we run into, we see with Disney+. Plus. So also in the August showdown is She-Hulk, the new Marvel series, and Andor, the new Star Wars series. And the thing with those titles is that they are big titles. They cost a significant amount of money to produce, but the audience for those titles is pretty much set. People who love Marvel and Star Wars already pay for Disney+. Plus. They already engage with Disney+, Plus pretty regularly. But... On the HBO Max side, you know, is there an audience that might be interested in House of the Dragon that hasn't signed up for HBO Max yet? You know, I'm not too sure about it. And I don't necessarily know if House of the Dragon is a retention driver because people who sign up for HBO Max for those types of shows are paying for HBO Max regularly. They have access to DC and all that. On the Amazon side, you know, if we look at Lord of the Rings, it's really hard to judge how many subscribers something like Lord of the Rings brings into Amazon Prime Video because so many customers already pay for Amazon Prime. So the question for Amazon Prime Video is how many people are engaging with it regularly and at what level are they then engaging with other Prime Video? You know, that's what we call referral value. How many other titles are they then watching? How many of those people are spending money on dog food and toilet paper afterwards? They're actually spending on Amazon Prime. So I think for Amazon, the goal is how many people are engaging with it to the point that they're engaging with a wider ecosystem. And I think for HBO Max, the question is how many people is House of the Dragon bringing in and getting them to open the app every single week Um, in order to really boost our numbers on that end. Yeah, it does seem like those are two really different strategies for these streamers. Um, It's Obviously now it's easier than ever to 
cancel one of these services and then turn it back on again when you want it. But to your point, Amazon Prime comes with a bundle of a huge number of other services that people can't live without. Right. Amazon Prime Video is an ecosystem, right? Amazon Prime Video exists as an ecosystem driver. Like a few years ago, there was a piece on Rico that was talking, talking to all the executives at Amazon, Amazon Prime Video. And there was this idea that, yeah, Amazon Prime Video was going to bring in new subscribers who weren't necessarily into e-commerce, but wanted content. And we see that globally. We see a lot of countries globally. Um, I think India is a great example where e-commerce is really difficult to crack. But if they're interested in certain content, they'll sign up for Prime Video. And so Prime Video still acts as a major acquisition driver into the greater Amazon Prime ecosystem in those kind in those territories. And so something like Lord of the Rings, The Rings of Power, which is a maybe not the best name <laughs> for a show, but that type of show can really help Amazon grow its subscriber base globally and increase spend across the site. I think with HBO Max, where its whole idea is we need this show to bring in millions of subscribers and then ideally get them to engage with the wider HBO Max ecosystem because the inherent value of that $15 subscription or whatever it might be is only content. So they need the Game of Thrones fans to then enjoy Flight Attendant, to then enjoy the new Warner Brothers movie, whatever it might be. That really, that show needs to bring in those subscribers so that way they can continue building off it and building off that momentum. Amazon wants subscribers to come in from the show. That's great. But then they want them to hang out in the greater Amazon Prime ecosystem, whether it be Twitch and gaming and buying like emotes or whatever they do on Twitch, um, or whether it be buying, again, like e-commerce stuff on the main retail site. It's funny that both of these shows are actually going up against each other at almost the exact same time, which happens to be the late summer, which is historically a period when there tends to be very little new TV, but lots of movies in theaters. And this year, it seems like it's the exact opposite. We're in this topsy-turvy post-COVID environment where there's like nothing in theaters right now, but two very expensive, huge tentpole shows are on streaming. So the cinemas have a supply chain issue. Well, supply chain is maybe the not right, right word, but they do have a supply issue where the studios are still a bit weary about bringing titles to cinemas in one camp. And then the other camp, because of COVID production delays and everything that was happening globally, they actually are late to production. They're in post-production, but they're, you know, they're late to the release schedule that they set up. So there's not a lot in theaters. If we look at August, there's actually no major blockbuster outside of Brad Pitt's Bullet Train, which isn't based on existing IP. It's not a big Marvel movie. It's not a big DC movie. If you look at the streaming side, beginning August 5th, you have The Sandman on Netflix and you end the month with Andor, House of the Dragon, and you really kick off September with Lord of the Rings. So it's the first time that we're seeing what we would have considered true summer blockbuster competition in the film space that we've always seen for decades. Now we're seeing it on the streaming space. And I think what's really great is that when we talk about television, these are all television series that you can't really watch on traditional television, right? They're not made for TV, they're made for streaming. And I think that's the first true moment of true competition, content to content, apples to apples, that we're seeing as all these major players finally finish rolling out their streaming services. Thanks, Julie. We'll, we'll be watching to see how both those shows perform and obviously will be really um, impactful in terms of the evolving narrative of the streaming space and how Wall Street is valuing these companies. We'll have you back on soon. Thanks for coming. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Peter Hamby. See you tomorrow. 
This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, and Chris Corcoran, chief content officer and founding partner of Cadence 13. 